Terre Haute, Indiana, 1987. Marilyn Sue Deshawn was too frightened to sleep. Earlier that evening, she and her common-law husband had watched one of the Nightmare on Elm Street films on cable TV. But it wasn't visions of the razor-fingered Freddy Krueger that haunted Deshawn as she huddled under her blankets that night. It was the raw excitement that she'd seen in her companion's face as he watched teenage girl after teenage girl viciously murdered. And it was the naked glee she'd heard in his voice as he bellowed for Freddy to, quote, kill the little bitches, end quote. Deshaun recalled that he was, quote, loud and evil sounding. I was more scared than I had ever been. I was scared to death of him. He looked evil, end quote. So when her spouse, the father of her three children, finally nodded off to sleep on the couch, Deshaun quietly locked herself in the bedroom and wedged a chair under the door handle. Then she fretted the night away. In the months following that night, in January 1987, Marilyn Sue Deshawn would learn just how justified her fears had been, for she had glimpsed a piece of a real-life horror story. She had peeked into the nightmarish soul of William J. Benefiel. Hi, Curious Listener. I'm Michelle. Welcome to Corn Fed Killer. The story I have for you today is nothing short of a living nightmare. The opening monologue was written by Vic Kaleka and published in the December 10th edition of the Indianapolis Star in 1989. This article drew me in because of the mention of Nightmare on Elm Street and Freddy Krueger, of course, uh, because I don't know if y'all know this, and if you don't, I'm sure it will come as no surprise, but I am a horror movie junkie. I've been watching them since I was way too little to watch them, and Freddy, he's one of my favorites. Uh, he's one of the best psycho killers, right? He's just so funny. <laughs> um, admittedly, sometimes I do root for him. Uh, and Does that make me insane? Certainly not. Does that make me a little weird? Yeah, probably, but I embrace that. But when I watch people get violently murdered on TV, I don't have a look of evil. At least I don't think I do. I don't think anyone sitting next to me while watching Freddy or Jason or Michael Myers would look at me and become so scared that they would feel the need to wedge a chair under their bedroom door, thinking I might come in and get them in the middle of the night. Well, why not? Why wouldn't somebody think that of someone enjoying watching others get murdered? Well, probably because I'm not a violent person, because I don't have a history 
of beating the shit out of women. William Benefil, on the other hand, had regularly beat his girlfriend Marilyn Deshawn in the 12 years that they had been together. In fact, Deshawn would later say that over the course of their time together, Benefil had beat her over 30 times. She said that sometimes he would beat her and sometimes he would rape her. She left him a handful of times, and often when they were still together, they lived in different areas of the house or even in complete, completely different houses. You see, Benefil's family owned four houses on 13 and a half Street in Terre Haute, Indiana, and they'd often move back and forth in between them. Deshaun, though, always came back to him. As abusers always do, he would apologize and make promises that he would stop beating her and she would remember the good times and hope that he would change. She would undoubtedly think of the man that he had been when they first met in 1976 at his mother's house. Deshaun remembered that Bill Benefil back in 1976, was kind and timid, shy, so shy. In fact, it was his mother, Helen, who prodded him into taking Marilyn out. Marilyn recalled how he had become despondent at the end of their first date, not wanting her to leave. She remembered how she wasn't even in the door to her house yet that first night when her phone started ringing and Benefil was on the line missing her. That was the bill she had fallen in love with. That was the bill that she would continue to cling to, even after the true monster that lurked within him was revealed to the world. I got to give you a trigger warning now, listeners. This is rough. This is going to get very rough. We're going to deal with sexual assault and murder. So be, be warned. All right. October 10th, 1986, Terre Haute, Indiana. 17-year-old Alicia Elmore, a senior at South Vigo High School, was walking the two blocks home from the neighborhood gas station, carrying the pops that she had purchased for her mother and brother who were sick at home. And in case you're not familiar, pop is what we call soda <laughs> here in Indiana. So if you ever hear someone from Indiana say pop, they're talking about what y'all probably call sola, sola, excuse me, soda or Coke. We call it pop. All right. So she's carrying the pops and she's walking home and a man comes out of nowhere, it seems, his face covered with a blue ski mask. The man asks her if she has any money. She says no, and she tries to keep going. That's when the stranger pulls out a gun and points it at her. She starts screaming, hoping that the noise might scare this creep away. It did not. He grabbed her, shoved the gun into her back, and walked her to a nearby garage, ordering her to open the door. She complied, and he pushed her inside. He pinned her down to the ground, holding the gun at her. 
he stripped off all of her clothes and then used her own pair of jeans that he had just ripped from her body to cover her eyes and head so she couldn't see. Then he bound her arms behind her back and tied her ankles together. She lay on the ground, naked, unable to move, and utterly petrified. She listened as this man left, only to return a few minutes later. When he returned, he picked her up and threw her into the back of a van. And he started driving. As he drove, he asked her what her name was and where she lived. They did not drive for long when he stopped the van and carried her inside a house, a house on South 13 and a half Street, one of the houses that his family owned. Once inside, the man grabbed a camera and took several pictures of the nude and terrified teenage girl. Then he raped her holding the gun to her head, telling her that he would kill her if she struggled or screamed. He chained her to a bed, taped her eyes shut, put headphones over her ears to muffle her hearing, shoved Kleenex into her mouth, and kept her hands and ankles bound. That is how she lived for the next two months. Naked, bound, and blinded. The man raped and sodomized her daily. Sometimes he would beat her and cut her body with a knife. She thought that she would die there. On December 9th, he removed the tape from her eyes, but she could not open them. The tears she had cried all those nightmarish days and nights had stuck her, stuck her eyelids together. Her captor pried her eyelids open and that was the first time she saw his face. William Benefiel was her real-life monster. Much more terrifying than Freddy Krueger, though you wouldn't know it to look at him. He was nondescript, an unassuming-looking man, not the type one might mark as a criminal. But yes, he was, in every sense of the word, a monstrous criminal. William Benefiel, according to his mother, had been born without a part of his brain. And this caused him to be intellectually stunted and socially, socially inept. Though it is important to note that the assertion that he was actually missing a portion of his brain was never biologically proven. Nevertheless, Benefiel had a rocky childhood. He was withdrawn and was often bullied at school. His teachers noted that he hardly spoke at all and didn't seem to know how to interact with his peers. His mother was described as controlling and stifling. She would allow her son to miss copious amounts of school so that he could stay home with her, where he would be safe and free from ridicule. She encouraged him to withdraw. He didn't make friends, and he did not do well academically. Finally, in October of 1971, after Bill Benefil had missed all but four and a half days of the school year, the principal phoned authorities and Bill Benefil was psychologically analyzed and his home life 
was also analyzed. Bill Benefil was found to be mildly stunted intellectually and emotionally disturbed. It was recommended that he and his mother both receive counseling, but Helen Benefil did not heed the recommendations and neither went to counseling. Shortly after that, the Department of Juvenile Corrections became involved because Bill Benefil had begun stealing and getting into trouble out of school and in school while in the short times that he was in attendance there. He was granted placement in a treatment center for the emotionally disturbed. But for whatever reason, the judge in his case never signed the papers ordering him to be enrolled in the treatment center, and he remained in his mother's house. Unbeknownst to his mother, to Marilyn Deshawn, and to authorities, Benefil would begin building a criminal repertoire over the next several years that included burglar, burglary, larceny, breaking and entering, kidnapping, and rape. In the months following Benefil's arrest in this case, authorities would learn that Benefil had been burglarizing homes for years. Truckloads of stolen items were discovered and removed from his houses. The list of stolen items recovered was 100 pages long. Not only that, the police connected him to 10 area rapes and suspected him in up to 30 more. So curious listener, it begs the question, how does a man of low intellect, how does a man missing a part of his brain, plan, perpetrate, and get away with so many crimes and for so long. I have a hard time reconciling that. I really, really do. I, I do. It takes a certain degree of intelligence to pull this kind of thing off. All right. He was holding Alicia captive, torturing her, raping her, all while burglarizing homes and then going home to Marilyn Deshawn and their three sons. Yes, you heard that correctly. She had three kids with this monster. So he was becoming a master at, at leading a double life, a triple life even, playing happy families with Marilyn Deshawn and then burglarizing houses, kidnapping and raping women. One day, in the early January of 1987, Alicia Elmore started bleeding. Benefil, surprisingly to me anyway, took her to the hospital. He took her to a hospital in Vincennes, Indiana, instructing her to tell the hospital authorities that she was his wife, telling her that he would be right on the other side of the curtain as she was being examined, holding his gun, ready to shoot and kill her if she betrayed him. She did not betray him. She went along with it. She was so terrified. They learned that Alicia was pregnant. When they returned to Terre Haute, he moved her 
from the house he had been keeping her at to another of the houses on the on the same road. And he chained her and he bound her just like he had done before. But he left the tape off of her eyes and he fed her better. Sometimes he would even let her walk around the house. She recalls that Benefil was excited that she was going to have a baby and that he hoped it would be a girl. Alicia says that he even talked about names he liked. This is beyond sickening. Isn't this beyond sickening? How? How? How can he do this? He made Alicia write love letters to him, dictating to her what they should say. And then he would write letters back to her. I mean, he's crazy fucked. I mean, this is a, this is fucked up. And I mean, not only is he obviously physically, sexually torturing and abusing her, but this is such a mind fuck, you know? All right. Over the next several days, he would often ask her how she wanted to die, quick or slow. Alicia told him quick. And Benefil would tell her, no, I will make sure you die slowly and painfully. He would taunt her with his pistol, which he had nicknamed Lulu. He would brag to, her, brag to her about his other crimes, about how he would watch houses and keep track of weddings and funerals so he would know which houses would be empty and when so that he could burglarize them. One day, he brought her a handful of gold rings that he had stolen. He told her to pick one. She did, and he put it on her, instructing her that she would wear it from that day on. This guy, I mean, god damn, he is one sick fuck. All right. On January 26th of 1987, Benefil announced to Alicia that he was going to burglarize a house. He had a plan, and he left. Alicia recalls that a few hours later, he came back to the house, and he grabbed a pair of handcuffs, telling Alicia that things were not going right, and left again. He returned late that night, and Alicia could hear noises coming from the basement. She heard voices, and what sounded like chains scraping against the floor. Later that same night, she heard a report on the police scanner that Benefiel kept in the house about an 18-year-old young mother named Dolores Wells, who had gone missing. Alicia knew in her gut that the person she heard with Benefiel in the basement was Dolores Wells, and that he had chained her up and raped her too. Knowing that it was cold, in the basement. When Benefil came back upstairs, Alicia begged him to bring the girl upstairs too, so she wouldn't be so cold. Oh, can you imagine? You know, it's, you know, horrific enough that's this piece of actual turd garbage is doing this to you, 
but now to have to listen to him do it to someone else, to see it, to hear it, um, God, it, it's unimaginable. It really, really is. Benefil did eventually bring her upstairs, and he chained her in a room next to the kitchen. He glued Dolores's eyes shut with super glue, and then he put tape over them. He shoved Kleenex down her throat and put headphones over her ears, keeping her chained to a bed near in a, in a room, like I said, near the kitchen. He raped and beat her repeatedly over the next 12 days. About a week after he brought Dolores to the house, Benefil brought Alicia into the room where he kept Dolores. Alicia saw a nude and bound Dolores lying on the mattress, shaking and crying. Benefil ordered Alicia to watch. Then, he beat her mercilessly with his fists and with an electrical cord. He told Alicia if she ever betrayed him that he would do the same to her. Alicia recalls seeing Dolores later and described her as being completely black and blue and that her face had blown up, swollen up like a balloon. Alicia knew that Benefil was going to kill Dolores, especially after he told her the following day that there was no point in feeding Dolores anymore. A few days later, Alicia thinks it was maybe February 4th, Benefil brought Dolores into the kitchen and crudely chopped her hair short, telling her that he was going, that she was going to die painfully and slowly. Alicia could hear Dolores crying and begging for her life, telling Benefil that she just wanted to go home to her baby and her husband. Oh, God. Can you imagine? I mean, obviously it's so horrific what he's doing to Dolores and what he had been doing and it was continuing to do to Alicia, but also, you know, again compounded on that for Alicia to have to hear that and to be powerless to help to have to hear the suffering of another woman another human being and be powerless to do anything about it I just cannot even imagine on February 7th Benefil left the house and was gone for several hours when he returned Alicia noticed that his hands were full of blisters and dirty, and his shoes and pant legs were caked with mud. He told Alicia that he had just dug a grave, big enough for two. He cleaned himself up, then he went to the pharmacy nearby, and he returned with a tube of superglue. He squirted the glue up Dolores's nose, and then pressed her nostrils together. Then he wrapped tape over her mouth and nose. He bound Alicia back up and taped over her eyes, warning her to never betray him. Then he left, 
taking Dolores Wells with him. When he returned, he told Alicia that he had killed Dolores. He told her that he took her out into the woods and tied her up, spread eagle between two trees, and watched her die, slowly suffocating. Then he, quote, popped, end quote, her neck just to be sure she was dead, and then he buried her. This is rough. I told you it was going to be a rough one. Um, just hang in there. Hang in there with me. All right. Meanwhile, while all this is going on, Marilyn Deshawn is becoming more and more suspicious of Beneful. He's not really living at the house with her anymore. He's gone all the time. He hasn't been sleeping there, hasn't been staying there. Now, that had happened in their relationship before, but it seemed odd for her this time because she'd been noticing that he was taking food from the house and asking her to buy groceries, more groceries than one person would need. So she wondered what he was doing with all this food. And she was convinced that he was cheating on her. She actually confronted him in December. And, you know, accused him of cheating. And in response, he broke her arm. Sometime in January, Marilyn actually saw a girl on the floor in the house that Benefil had been living at. Later, she would realize that the girl she saw was Alicia. At that time, she took their kids and she went to stay with her brother. Later that month, Marilyn Deshawn's sister actually called the police and told them that Beneful might be keeping a girl in his house against her will. Police try to get a search warrant for his house, but they are unsuccessful. About a week later, Marilyn Deshawn sees a newspaper article about Alicia Elmore's disappearance. In the article, her parents are pleading for any information on her whereabouts. And Marilyn Deshawn knows for sure now Alicia is the girl she saw in Benefil's house. She calls in an anonymous tip to police. Nothing seems to come of it, so a week later she calls again. This time, she tells police all about Bill Benefil and gives them his address. This time, police successfully obtain a search warrant. On February 10th, 1987, just three days after Benefil savagely murdered Dolores Wells, police show up on his doorstep, search warrant in hand. He saw them coming. He removed a few ceiling tiles and then forced Alicia up into the ceiling and replaced the tiles, telling her to not make a sound. What he neglected to do was hide photos that he had taken of Alicia and Dolores and the love letters that he had made her write. Police continued searching, and thankfully, 
They found Alicia and rescued her. Benefil was arrested that day. The body of Dolores Wells was found 12 days later. An autopsy would reveal what we already know. She died of asphyxia due to superglue in her nose. She had been beaten viciously and raped. The search of Benefil's house turned up duct tape that had eyelashes, eyebrow hairs, and head hairs that belonged to Dolores Wells on it. Benefil was charged with murder, kidnapping, rape, criminal deviant conduct, assault, unlawful imprisonment. His trial began in September of 1988. Vigo County Prosecutor Philip Adler was seeking the death penalty. He presented his case. Alicia, who since being rescued, had had an abortion and moved to Texas, was the star witness. And I say, good for her. And I don't give a fuck what y'all pro-lifers want to say about abortion. Would you want to have this fucker's baby? I don't think so. So I'm glad she was able to do that. All right. Marilyn also testified and the jury got to see what a truly evil monster he really was. Sadistic monster. His defense team tried to say that Benefil was mentally ill and could not be held responsible for his crimes, that he could not control his impulses, and that he should have been given the help he needed years ago. Apparently, they just glossed over or flat out ignored the fact that he had been offered help more than once. The defense's star witness was a psychologist called Stephen Stewart who testified that Benefil had multiple personalities. He said that there was Bill. Bill was evil, violent, and full of rage. And then there was Billy, who was good and a, a wimpy kind of character. He said that there was a final personality, an unnamed one of a little boy. Alicia, Marilyn, and his own mother disputed these claims on the witness stand. Yes, he had mood swings. Yes, he had a hard time socializing, but they had never witnessed multiple personalities. About two weeks into the trial, Benefil announced that he was done with it and he refused to attend the remainder of his own fucking murder trial. This floors me. When asked by the judge why he did not want to attend, he just said, quote, I can't, end quote. And to that I say, Benlian, you weak-ass punk motherfucker, fuck right the hell off with that garbage. The victim's mothers are in that courtroom every day, listening to this horrific 
nightmare. Dolores's mother listening to the unbelievably sadistic and vicious way that she was treated and murdered. So you don't get to decide one day that you just don't want to fucking come to your trial and listen to it. Fuck that. It pisses me off in case you didn't know. And they allowed it. They did not force him to come. <sighs> in any event, he was found guilty on October 3rd of 1988. And on November 4th of 1988, he was sentenced to death. In response, he told reporters, quote, I got what I wanted, end quote. This fucking guy, I swear. After the sentencing, he wrote a letter to the Indiana Supreme Court saying that he wanted to waive all of his appeals and just be put to death. Again, fuckface, you can't just say what you want and expect to get it when you want it. The court told him, nah, you can't do that. You cannot waive all of your appeals. By Indiana law, every death penalty case, no matter what, must go through an appeals process. Fortunately, his first appeal was denied, as was everyone after that, and yes, he did file them after that. Finally, on April 21st of 2005, William J. Benefil was executed by lethal injection at the Indiana State Prison in Michigan City, Indiana. His final words were, let's hurry this up. Let's get it over with. Let's do it. Whatevs. Mary Hagen, Dolores Wells' mother, was there. Though she wasn't allowed to watch the execution, because Indiana law allows the inmate to invite up to 10 witnesses and no one else is permitted to watch. Benefil invited one witness, whose identity was not released. Alicia Elmore was not there, but her mother was. Mary Hagen, Dolores' mother, says that she was disappointed that she could not watch him die. She said he was there for her daughter's last breath. She wanted to be there to see his. And, you know, as a mom, curious listener, I get it. I get it 100%. Yeah, it sounds morbid. It sounds kind of, you know, odd. But I motherfucking get it 100%. I feel for her so much, so much. Um, she did say to reporters, quote, I don't have to focus on him every day and wonder if someday he'll get out. So, you know, I, and I think I've said this before on the podcast, I don't really believe in closure, um, I think it's sort of a something that we humans kind of make up because it's hard to not believe that there is closure. But for something like this, I think, yeah, she's got an answer. Yes, he's dead. So she can move on from the thought that he is still living while his daughter, or pardon me, while her daughter is dead because of him. There's some kind of peace in that, I'm sure. But there's never truly closure, I don't believe. 
Um, another interesting tidbit I will say about Marilyn is after he was arrested a year later, but before his trial began, and so it was in February of 1987, she, or 1988 rather, she went to the prison in a purple and pink flowered dress and married this motherfucker. Married him. She even took his last name, knowing that it was now associated with a sadistic murderer and rapist. Her explanation was she still loved him and she had no regrets, she said. What? Like, what the fuck? I don't understand that at all. Um, you know, she was instrumental in his being caught. And thank God for that. Thank God she called. Thanks God. Thank God she did that. So, you know, it would seem that those actions show that she has humanity, that she has feeling for other women, for other people. Um, but how can you reconcile the person that you love with someone who commits such heinous acts? I, I mean, shit, I cannot even imagine even wanting to look at that person again, let alone be married to them. So beyond me. All right. So that is it. That is the case of William J. Benefil. Uh, good riddance. Um, as always, you can check the Instagram at Instagram at Cornfred Killer Podcast to see photos and whatnot. You can email me at cornfedkillerpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, curious listener.